If you have your Bibles, John chapter 5 is where we are. Last week, we finished out a very important section in chapter 4 that rounded out um, the Samaritan uh, woman, the Samaritan response, Jesus going to the Galileans. He was received by the Samaritans. He was not received by the Galileans. They received him, but they didn't receive him. They believed him, but they didn't believe him. We looked at the healing of the royal official son. And this morning, we're going to look at another healing. It's another healing. It's another sign. It's another miracle. It's another pointer to Jesus' deity. But inside of it, there are many differences, and there is an enormously different response. That's why this is so crucially important for us. This text is so important because though we've seen signs time and time again, we've seen him do miracles, we've seen those point to his deity, we're going to see that again. There's some differences here, but the biggest difference is the response and what's going to come from the response that we'll see in the coming weeks. I want to read these verses, um, John chapter 5, verses 1 through 17. And then we're going to pray and ask God to maximize our time as we go through these verses. After these things, there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now there is in Jerusalem by the sheep gate a pool, which is called in Hebrew Bethesda, having five porticos. In these lay a multitude of those who were sick, blind, lame, and withered, waiting for the moving of the waters, for an angel of the Lord went down at certain seasons into the pool and stirred up the water. Whoever then first, after the stirring up of the water, stepped in was made well from whatever disease with which he was afflicted. A man was there who had been ill for 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been a long time in that condition, he said to him, Do you wish to get well? The sick man answered him, Sir, I have no man to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up, but while I am coming, other steps down before me. Jesus says to him, Get up, pick up your pallet, and walk. Immediately the man became well and picked up his pallet and began to walk. Now it was the Sabbath on that day, So the Jews were saying to the man who was cured, it is the Sabbath. It is not permissible for you to carry your pallet. But he answered them, he who made me well was the one who said to me, pick up your pallet and walk. They asked him, who is the man who said to you, pick up your pallet and walk? But the man who was healed did not know who it was, for Jesus had slipped away while there was a crowd in that place. Afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, Behold, you have become well. Do not sin anymore so that nothing worse happens to you. The man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had made him well. For this reason, the Jews were persecuting Jesus because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. But he answered them, My father is working until now, and I myself am working. God, this passage is so rich. I pray your spirit would illuminate our understanding to the mercies of Jesus, the compassion of Jesus, how we fit in this passage and what this passage says about us. May we see Jesus, may we see ourselves, may we see the holiness of our God, and may we see the mercy that is found at the cross. We pray it in his name. Amen. For our time this morning, just three points to outline this section of 17 verses. We're going to see the context in verses 1 through 4. We're going to see the compassion 
in verses 5 through the beginning of verse 9. And then we're going to see the controversy in the end of verse 9 through verse 17. So number one, the context, verses 1 through 4. The setting of this passage is back in Jerusalem. Verse 1, after these things, after hanging out in Galilee, after healing the, the royal official's son, there was a feast. We don't know what feast this was. In John, uh, he specifies several times what feast it is that Jesus is participating in. And he does that because the feast has symbols, and Jesus speaks of those symbols and says they find their reality and fulfillment in me. So there are reasons why John will specify what feast it is. So obviously, there's reasons why he doesn't specify this. Namely, what he's about to say has no bearing symbolically on whatever the festival is. So he's at a feast in Jerusalem. He goes up because it's higher in elevation, so he goes up to Jerusalem. And in Jerusalem, verse 2, there is this gate called the Sheep Gate. It's in the northeastern corner of Jerusalem. And there is a pool right inside of the Sheep Gate uh, called Bethesda. In Hebrew, it's called Bethesda. The word literally means house of mercy, house of outpouring of mercy. Um, This gate you can see in Nehemiah chapter 3, verse 1, and a couple other places in Nehemiah. Um, these pools are actually still there today. They're not pools. You can go to Jerusalem. I've been there a couple times, and you can see these pools. You can see them exactly the way they're described here. There are pools and five porticos. Porticos are, some of your Bibles might say colonnades. Um, they are porched, are arched ways where you can just kind of hang out underneath an awning so that you don't have the sun beating down on you. There are five of them. Uh, There are four that surround the box of the pool. So you've got one, two, three, four, rectangle with a pool in the middle. And then you have another colonnade that splits them. So there's two pools. Uh, There's a colonnade that splits them because there were so many people that were coming to this pool, to these pools to be healed, that they had to put in another colonnade here. So you kind of have a rectangle split in the middle. Five colonnades, five porticos. In these lay a multitude of those who were sick, blind, lame, and withered. There's a bunch of sick people here. At the end of verse 3, my Bible has it in brackets all the way down through verse 4. If you have an ESV, they don't even include it in the text. It's a footnote. What does this mean? We can't go too far on this, but brackets in the text... Uh, like the end of Mark, Mark 16, other places in Scripture, you'll find brackets in the New Testament. The reason why you find these brackets is they are denoting that these words in the brackets are not in the earliest manuscripts that we have of the New Testament, meaning that they were later added. Mark's ending was later added. We're going to talk about this in Family Bible Hour, but it was later added more than likely because nobody really liked the ending of Mark. It's a very abrupt, very strange, very weird ending. And so people said, we need to kind of have some resolution, some falling action, some conclusion here. So let's add something to it to round out the end of it. It's in brackets. Same thing is happening here. The reason why is because of verse 7. When the man, first of all, why are all these sick people hanging out at a pool? And then when the man says, Sir, I have no man to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up, but while I am coming, another steps down before me. 
if we just have that verse by itself, we'd be scratching our heads going, what does that mean? And a lot of people did that back in the day. So people started making study Bibles. They started saying, here's a note in the margin of this scroll of John. By the way, there was a tradition that if you stepped into the water as an angel was stirring it up, you would be healed. The first person in would be healed. That was a superstition. There wasn't an angel of the Lord coming down. There wasn't somebody stirring up the water with their fingers. It's actually a spring. Um, There's a spring there. Uh, You can see it to this day. Uh, It's a very mineraled spring, has a lot of red particles in it, and a lot of um, medical people have said that it has medicinal uses for skin diseases and things that are external. So maybe as somebody went into the pool and the spring would bubble up with some of these medicinal properties, they would be healed or these uh, afflictions would go away. And so other people thought, well, if it went away on your skin, maybe it'll go away internally. Whatever it is, it's added there in those brackets for our understanding to know why the superstition, what the superstition is, and why the man is there waiting to be taken to the pool. What I love about the Bible is that we know this should be in brackets. This is something in, in bibliology, in the study of the Bible, this is something that we call textual criticism. Going back and seeing early copies of the Bible and criticizing them, if you will, with one another to make sure we know what truly should be in Scripture. One of the reasons why I believe the Bible is true is because of the evidence that we have about it. I believe the Bible is true, number one, because it internally tells me it's true. But it has evidence to back that up. For instance, if we go back to... Plato's writings. Plato's writings that we have to this day were written between 427 to 347 BC, and we have copies of those works. But the earliest copy that we have of the works that he produced in 400 BC, the earliest copies that we have are in 900 AD, so a a span of 1,200 years between when Plato wrote and the earliest copy that we have, 1,200 years. And we have seven copies, seven copies. I have seven people on here. I have Euripides, I have Caesar, I have Homer. Let's stop with Homer's Iliad, written in 900 B.C. Earliest copy is in 400 B.C., so 500 years between when he wrote it and when it was copied down, when the earliest copy that we have. There are 643 copies of Homer's Iliad. Caesar wrote some things. We have 10 copies with a thousand years spanning. Euripides wrote some things. Nine copies with 1,300 years between it. The New Testament, written between 50 to 100 AD, somewhere in that range. Uh, The earliest copies that we have, the earliest manuscripts, are right at 130 AD. So... If you take the biggest gap, you have less than 100 years. If you have the smallest gap, you have 30 years removed. So 1,200 years for Plato's works, 500 years for Homer's works, 30 years for the New Testament. So it's copied, so it's written, it's copied 30 years between. Homer had 643 copies that we have of his work. We have around 6,000 Greek manuscripts of the New Testament alone, 
And if you include five other languages that were the New Testament was copied into at that time, you have over 25,000 copies of the New Testament available to us that was copied only 30 to 70 years removed from when it was actually written. People were still alive when it was being copied so they could fact check it and make sure it was still okay. All that to say, we have so much ample evidence to tell us the earliest manuscripts of John don't include these brackets, this, this bracketed sentence. We know why it was written. We know when it was added. And we know that it was added, so it's not a part of Scripture. Does that make sense? Okay. Verse 5. <clears throat> There's a man who is sick. He's been ill for 38 years. I have not even been alive that long. He's been ill for that long, and he's there at the pool. Why? Why would anybody believe this nonsense? This is my question. That as you're sitting there, a bubbling starts to happen, and as the bubbling starts to happen, you think it's an angel, and you quick run over there. Just in your own sanctified imagination, think about this. You have lame people who can't walk, who are trying to immerse themselves into a pool. What's going to happen to these people? What are they thinking? If I make it in and I'm the first one and I'm healed, I'll be okay. I don't have a plan B. If I make it in and it doesn't work out for me, I'm in trouble. Why would anybody, anybody believe this? This is ancient medicine for you. There's an Egyptian medical book that I love. It says this, To prevent hair from turning gray, anoint it with the blood of a black calf boiled in oil or with the fat of a rattlesnake. Okay. Just talk to Paul Hodgson. He can get you a rattlesnake, I guess. Cut out the fat. There you go. We can stop hair turning gray. Here's another one. When your hair falls out, so you tried to stop it from turning gray. That didn't work. It's falling out. Apply a mixture of six fats, those of the horse, the hippo, the crocodile. How are you going to get that? I don't know. That's a little bit harder to come by. The cat, the snake, and an ibex. Strengthen it. To strengthen your hair, anoint it with the tooth of a donkey crushed in honey. This is, this is ancient medicine. So a lot of people are thinking this can work. This pools are going to stir up. I can just dive in and I'll be healed. We meet a man in verse 5 who's been ill for 38 years. So we have our context. This is the setting. We have the context. Now we see the compassion of Jesus. Verse 6, Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he'd already been a long time in that condition. He knew it. Um, some Bibles say, it's the NIV that says, uh, when Jesus saw him lying there and learned that he had already been a long time in that condition. Uh, that's actually a, a wrong translation. It gives you the, the appearance that Jesus went there, saw a man, and, and asked somebody, how long have you been here, 30 years? Okay, he learned it. The word there is not learned. The word is a very specific word for knowledge that you can have before the event happens. Uh, the way that the word is used, the construction of the sentence, the specific word that's used, it's very clearly Jesus sovereignly knew this. He walks into the pool and there's a multitude of people and he sees a man and he knows that this man has been in this condition for 38 years. 
He knows that. Now, we read this story so many times. We've read it, we know it, and it does not take our breath away the way that it should. We need to read this as if we were reading it for the very first time. Jesus sees this man, and he's going to go up to him and ask him a question. Look at Jesus' compassion. Number one, Jesus makes a point to go to this pool. He could have gone anywhere in Jerusalem. He says, I'm going to that pool. And then in the multitude, verse 3, of invalids, he singles out one man. And number three, in verse 6, he knows that man, sovereignly knows what this man is going through. He knows where he is. He knows why he's there. He knows how long he's been there. The sovereign compassion of our Savior is on display. This should be a comfort to us to be known by the God of the universe, to know that the one that you get to pray to, that I get to talk to, that we speak to, knows every word that we are going to say before we even speak it. That's a precious thing. We need to let Jesus' knowledge of us have an impact on our relationship with him. That should change the way that you have a relationship with your Savior, that he knows everything there is to know about you. That's precious. But you have to couple that sovereign knowledge with compassion. Because if he was sovereignly in control and knew everything there is to know about you but was mean-spirited, then that's a very bad thing, to be in a relationship with somebody who knows everything there is to know about you and is mean-spirited. So for Jesus to know everything there is to know about you and to love you with compassion, we need to be in awe and let that change our relationship with him. He chooses to go to this pool. Last week in the narrative, in Galilee, the royal official came to him. This time, Jesus is going to this man. And he asks him a question, the end of verse 6. And it is a question that is another one of those statements that when Jesus speaks, I feel like I have to apologize for him. He asks, do you wish to get well? I'm sorry, that's, that's a ridiculous question. There are questions that you learn in life that are pointless to ask, that are bad to ask, that can get you in trouble. Here's a, a pointless question to ask. Um, don't ever ask a football coach if they're going to win the next game, if they think they're going to win. Uh, no matter how, you all, how bad you are as a football team, your football coach will always say, we've got a chance if we just play our game and score more points. It's a pointless question to ask because they're just going to say, yeah, we can win. They don't understand reality. Here's a bad question to ask. If you think that a woman is pregnant, but you're not sure, (laughs) just wait until a baby comes out. Don't ask that question. Here's another question that you should never ask. Don't go to somebody lying in a hospital bed with tubes sticking in them Do you want to get better? What a terrible question. And that's what Jesus asks. Do you wish to get well? Somebody asks me that when I'm lying in a hospital bed with tubes in my face and on my body. And they go, hey, it's great to see you, Patrick. Do you want to get better? No. Why do you think I'm here? Come on. Why is Jesus asking this question? We're going to talk a lot more about this at the end of the sermon. But... 
for now, I want you to see the man doesn't answer the question. The man doesn't say, yes, I want to get well. This man, bless his heart, this man is a little dense. And we're going to see it a couple times throughout this section of Scripture. He says, sir, I have no man, this is verse 7, to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up. But while I'm coming, another steps down before me. A little bit inside of that is, of course, I want to get well. A little bit inside of that is hopelessness. It's never going to happen. Jesus doesn't go back to his first question. He just says, get up, pick up your pallet, and walk. Now, based on his response, based on the sick man's response in verse 7, do you wish to get well? Again, we've got to get some sanctified imagination here. I think the answer is, I don't have anybody to take me. Um, maybe a little bit of an older guy, a little bit set in his ways, kind of like, look at me. So I think when Jesus says, pick up your pallet and walk, get up, I have a feeling that the first reaction is, did you not hear what I said? I have nobody to, t- I, I, I just kind of have a feeling that there's a sense. What's going to happen though? Jesus' words with compassion and sovereign power immediately healed a man. And the man, as he's lying there, 38 years in this condition, stands up. Now, he hasn't been able to walk for 38 years. If you can't walk for 38 years, your muscles, your legs are stuck and atrophied. And I don't know if instantly this man's legs just poof out and he has muscles and he has joints that are fluid and he can walk. Or I like to think that they don't look any different. And he stands up, but they move differently. They still look completely stick-like, no muscles, no joint movement, and now all of a sudden he has it. Whatever it is, it's immediate. Just like we always see Jesus doing. There's only a handful of um, kind of, there's one Uh, miracle that's split in two. I'm going to do this, and then I'll do some of it later. Other than that, when he says the word, it happens immediately. And here it happens immediately. He picks up his pallet, and he begins to walk. The compassion of Jesus on display. Notice, the man, the royal official, he is the one in the sermon last week, he is the one that approaches Jesus. This man here does not. Jesus approaches him. The royal official last week says, I have faith that you can do this. This man has no faith whatsoever. Jesus isn't going to this man because he has faith. He's going to this man because he doesn't have faith. He's going to him to point out and make a lesson here. We're going to see he doesn't even know who Jesus is. This man is not like the blind man in John 9. John 9, when the blind man, blind from birth, is healed and he can see The Pharisees ask him, hey, who healed you? And he says, it's Jesus. I don't know where he is, but Jesus healed me. When the Pharisees ask this man, who healed you? This man goes, I don't know. He doesn't even know who Jesus is. So he definitely does not have faith in Jesus. And yet Jesus, in his sovereign compassion, still makes the first move and says, I'm going to heal you despite the fact that you don't even have faith. Now, if the story ends there, we have a lot that we can talk about. And praise the Lord, and it's good. And I wish that it would But there's a tag on the end of verse 9 that just makes us groan. Now it was the Sabbath on that day. 
We have the context. We have the compassion. Now we have the controversy. It's Sabbath. We talked about this in Family Bible Hour a little bit. What the Sabbath day represented. I just look at this verse. Man, Jesus, could you have just wait? This guy had been in his condition for 38 years. 38 years and one more day would not have hurt this guy. Why, why Sabbath? Why not wait one more day? I think that's the point. He's doing this. When Jesus does one thing, he's doing a billion things, right? We've talked about that a lot. When he's going to heal this man, he's healing him. He's also going to be attacking the Pharisees and the religious uh, institution that was going on in that day. So he does it on the Sabbath, just like we saw him in Family Bible Hour. Go after in the synagogue, after the, the Pharisees on the Sabbath. He's doing it here. He's making a point. What's his point? That he is God, that he is Lord over the Sabbath, as we saw in Family Bible Hour and Mark. So, verse 10, it's Sabbath, and the Jews, when we see that most often in John, John is referring to the religious leaders. So you could put Sadducees, Pharisees, you could put that in there. They were saying to the man who was cured, it is the Sabbath, and it's not permissible for you to carry your pallet. I just, I love this. Is this not the way that unbelief works? Even the way that John puts the juxtaposition of these words, they were saying to the man who was cured... It's the Sabbath. Instead of looking at, you were sick for 38 years, and look at everything, and by the way, I just have one question. They zero in. It's the Sabbath. I don't care that you were cured. I don't care that there was a miracle that just took place. You aren't allowed to do this. Now, why is this so? The Sabbath, to the religious leaders, was a day where they had placed impossible burdens on their people. Sabbath was supposed to be a place, a day of rest, supposed to be a a blessed day, and it became a cursed day because of these religious leaders. It was supposed to be the best day of the week. You always look forward to the Sabbath, and that was the worst day of the week. No one ever looks forward to the Sabbath. Now, God had commanded rest, for sure, but he commanded rest from work, from commerce, from business, not from walking. You could walk around. You could cook was fine. You could heal people if you wanted to. There were 39 categories of Sabbath laws and a bunch of laws under each category. And there was a category, the 39th category of Sabbath laws is a category of bearing burdens. One of the things that you were not allowed to bear as a burden was your pallet or your bed. You also couldn't wear false teeth on the Sabbath. Because if they fell out, you would be tempted to pick them up. And if you pick up your false teeth, that's bearing a burden. You couldn't carry a handkerchief. You could wear one. So if you wanted to give somebody a little piece of cloth from upstairs, you had to go upstairs, you had to put it on, you had to walk downstairs, you had to take it off and give give it to them. You couldn't look at a mirror if you were a woman on the Sabbath because you would be tempted to pluck any gray hairs or unsightly hairs that you might see. So we're talking way beyond what God had said. Way beyond. Safety net, safety net, safety net, safety net, safety net. You can't even look in a mirror because you'd be tempted to do something way beyond. You couldn't spit into the dirt. You could spit on grass, but you couldn't spit into dirt because if you spit into dirt, it would cause a divot, and that's plowing a ditch. This religious system was awful. There was even a debate back then about a man with a wooden leg. 
if your house is on fire and you have a wooden leg and you don't want your leg to catch on fire, can you take the leg off and hobble out? Can you hop out of your house while it's on fire? And there was a huge debate. No, it's bearing, if you hold it, it's bearing a burden. So you just got to stomp all over the fire with a piece of wood and you're going to blow up. But nope, you got to do it. This is an awful religious system. And so they say, it's not permissible for you to do this. They totally miss the miracle. They miss the sign. They don't let it point them to Jesus' deity. They just say, you're not observing the Sabbath. Verse 11, he answers them. And there's a couple different ways you can read this. I think with this man's denseness, you just kind of read it as, I don't want to be in trouble. He says, he who made me well was the one who said to me, pick up your pout and walk. Maybe there's some authority there. Look, he made me well. He has authority to tell me what to do. I can go for that. But he's just kind of, you know, this is the the, the woman that you gave me. It's her fault. Like, go find him. This is making excuses and blame shifting. So they say, who's the guy who told you that? Who's the man who said to you, pick up your pout and walk? But the man who was healed didn't even know who it was. Jesus had slipped away from that crowd. Again, we see a picture in this man. He doesn't, he doesn't care, doesn't know who he is, doesn't say, hey, who are you, by the way? He's healed. He picks up his pallet and says, thank you, and walks away. Afterwards, verse 14, Jesus finds him in the temple. This man doesn't find Jesus. I don't think that this man is, is in a place where he's saying, I believe in Jesus as the Son of God and Messiah. I just think he's saying, I was healed. Hooray. So Jesus has to find him. Jesus finds him in the temple, and he says something to him. Verse 14, Behold, you have become well. Do not sin anymore so that nothing worse happens to you. Now, there's... There's two ways we can take that. And I think that both are fine. Some people say this man was in this physical condition because of sin. Maybe he had done something and that had gotten him into a place where he was injured. I'm fine with that. I'm fine with saying sin brings about sickness. Absolutely. As long as we have the other side of the coin, John 9, I mean, we're just a couple chapters removed from the disciples saying, hey, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? And he says it's not his sin that did that. So I'm fine with saying maybe it's this man's sin that caused his sickness. We see that in other places in Scripture. If you sin, sickness can be a part of that. Death can be a part of that. Paul says if you drink and eat of the Lord's table in an unworthy manner, you will die. Some people had already died. So I'm fine saying that just as long as we have the caveat that every sickness does not mean that you sinned. Okay, we've got that. I think it also could simply be Jesus' plea with him. You obviously are not getting this. I didn't heal you so that your life would be amazing here and then you would go to hell. Don't keep on sinning because if you keep on sinning, you'll be healed in this life, but something worse is going to happen to you. Namely, you're going to go to hell. This man didn't pursue Jesus. Jesus pursues the man and says, by the way, just very simply, I healed you for the sake of your holiness. I did not heal you for your happiness to have a good life. I healed you for your holiness. So be holy, follow me in essence, obey my commands. What happens? What's the man's reaction? Verse 15, the man goes away and he tells the Jews that it was Jesus who made him well. Again, we don't know exactly what he's saying here, but I think based on this man's reputation thus far, 
He goes away and he goes, hey, I know who it was. It was Jesus. It wasn't me. I'm okay. I'm scot-free. I, I, this is a religion that's so oppressive onto him that he's saying, please don't say that I'm wrong. So he says, it's Jesus. The religious leaders aren't surprised about this, but they start persecuting, verse 16. They start persecuting Jesus because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. So a miracle that should have brought about praise brings about persecution. Jesus answered, verse 17. Again, I love this. NIV, I believe, says Jesus said, which sounds like he just goes up to them and says. He, the word there is the word answered. He spoke back to them. They had a question Who gave you the authority to do these things? Why are you doing these things? Is it lawful for you to do these things? And Jesus answers them. My father is working until now, and I myself am working. Verse 18, for this reason, therefore, the Jews were seeking all the more now, not just to persecute him, but to kill him. And that's exactly what we saw in Family Bible Hour. When he said, I am Lord of the Sabbath, they say, we wanted to destroy him. We want him dead. We'll talk about his words next week and we'll keep moving forward. Jesus is saying, I'm equal to God. I am God. I am Lord of the Sabbath. I own it. I control it. And you've changed it and you've made it oppressive in your legalism. You care about observing the rules instead of celebrating what God has done. So we see the context. We see the compassion of Jesus. We see the the controversy that ensues. So what? Just two points of conclusion. And we're going to look at two men here. We're going to look at the paralyzed man, and then we're going to look at the religious leaders. Because I think we can see ourselves in both of them and their reaction to Jesus. We we know what Jesus has done. We know that Jesus has sovereignly given us compassion. We've seen that. We know that. The question is, how are you reacting to it? Who are you in this scenario? And I think we'll see a little bit of both. Number one, let's just start with the paralyzed man. Just like this man, we had no one to help us deal with our problem of sin. He had a problem of sickness. We have a problem of sin. We can't get ourselves to the fountain of living water. We can't get ourselves to be cleansed, even as we said, you need to wash me, Savior, or I die. I can't get to you. I can't cleanse myself. Not the labor of my hands can fulfill thy law's demands. No one could help us. We couldn't help ourselves. No one else could help us. Only Jesus is our source of healing. But I want you to go back to verse 6, the question, do you wish to get well? Do you wish to be healed? Why that question? We know that Jesus is not a foolish man. This is a purposeful question. And I think it's purposeful for us today. R. Kent Hughes says it this way. Few things hamper the gracious work of Jesus in our lives more than our response to this question. Do you want to be healed? We hear the promises of God, and at first our hearts are warmed, and we respond to them. Or at least we think we respond to them. But then, when we hear the promise again, we want to be warmed again. This cycle continues in our lives, but nothing ever happens. Why? Because although we think and say we want to be healed... In our heart of hearts, we really do not. This is why this miracle is so relevant and important to us today. Why would this man be asked this question by Jesus? There is a very real possibility that he has given up so much hope in a hopeless situation that he's fine looking at the rest of his life being disabled because he's saying, you know what? 
I don't have to work for a living. People give me money. They take care of me. At least I don't have to have a bunch of responsibilities. And if I were to all of a sudden be healed, I'd have a lot of work to do on my body. I'd have a lot of work to do to get a responsible job and all of those different things. Whatever the reason, this is a very serious question. Do you even want to get well? Kent Hughes continues, because Jesus and what he offers look so delicious from a distance, yet when we look closely at it, it may appear in an entirely different light. We begin to see that Christ is an aggressive, requiring Lord. In my experience, I've seen people attend church, even sitting in the front row. They are very respectful, very excited about what they're hearing, but they're not converted, even though they are listening to the gospel. There comes a time when they realize that they don't want to be healed, and so they just leave. Not to another faith, not to another church. They just leave. They don't want to be healed. So obviously he's speaking of non-believers. And I think that that is a warranted question. In our church, are there people, are you in a position where you come and you hear the gospel, but you don't really want to be healed from your sins? You don't really want to be cleansed and forgiven. But what about believers? He goes on, the question to you, believer, is do you really want to be healed? I'm speaking primarily of bitterness, unresolved conflicts, things that lie hidden inside of us. Sometimes when we experience these things, we are aware of them, but we don't deal with them. We cauterize them. We layer them over. But they are realities within us, and they do affect our lives. Even though we cannot put a finger on them, they take their toll. As a result, we don't feel God's power. We don't feel the authenticity of grace that we know we ought to feel. We know we should be joyful, In all the things that we confess, and while we are doing the right thing, reading the Bible and praying, we have little power and little peace. The question remains, do you really want to be healed? Do you really want to have those things resolved? I believe with all my heart that if we do, and if we take the time to ask God to do his work within us, he will reveal the things that must be washed away, the refuse, the filth, the sin So the question that Jesus asked the paralyzed man, the seemingly unnecessary, ridiculous question, was relevant for him and for us. It is the most insistent question people face if they do not know Jesus, and it remains relevant in the lives of Christians who do know Jesus. But what a blessed thing to have the release, the fullness, the joy that comes with having things cleared with God and with being healed. So... Are you in a place where you could identify this needs to change in my life? And maybe you say, eh, I'll work on it. But deep down in your heart, you're saying, God, I, I don't really want to get rid of it. That sin gives me power. That sin gives me, the, the bitterness that I have or the unresolved conflict that I have gives me power over somebody and I can keep them in the doghouse, whatever it is. Say, I know it's wrong, God, but I don't really want to be healed. The question is, do you want to be healed? Secondly, in conclusion, let's look at the religious leaders. They obviously struggle with legalism. And I think if we're honest, we do too. Uh, I I see Luke 15, the prodigal son, the story of the prodigal son. Um, The father says in in the story, this son who was dead has now been made alive. He's alive, he's found, and we're celebrating And he says to the older brother, who is um, typifying the the Pharisees, um, please come in, celebrate with us. And the older brother says, no, I'm not. The spirit of legalism 
is to not celebrate what Jesus has done. Legalists don't celebrate. They just observe. Donald Gray Barnhouse says it this way. Why all this viciousness? Why this desire to destroy the meek and lowly Jesus? Why this murderous attempt to do away with God? The answer is here in this Sabbath question. They wanted rules. They didn't want God's grace. They wanted human merit. They didn't want the simplicity of divine pardon. They wanted to do something for themselves. And so I just ask all of us, do we want to be healed? Really? The the beauty of that is this man probably didn't even know what was going on. And Jesus says, "I'll, I'll heal you anyway. There's a beauty in the way that Jesus deals with us, even though we don't know what's going on in our hearts. But do you even want it? And secondly, do you celebrate what Jesus has done? Or are you like the Pharisees? Where when you go through something in life and 90% of it's amazing, you just, you tend as a spiritually pessimistic person to just always stare at the 10% that you didn't like. If that's the case, then you're more of a Pharisee than you would think that you are. And Jesus would just welcome you. Celebrate today. Celebrate the good. Don't just criticize the bad. The reality is this week has been a beautiful week of offering thanks to our God. And just as we looked at last week, Thanksgiving is what undoes both of these things. Do you want to be healed? Yes. And thank you, Jesus, that he can do it. And you don't have to do it on your own. Do you want to be less critical less observant and celebrate in the joy of God's grace and offer thanks. Thanksgiving is what will destroy both of these sinful responses to Jesus' sovereign compassion. God, thank you so much for your love. Our hearts are truly filled with thankfulness for your grace. And we long for you to be glorified in our midst. We long for you to receive praise and not have us criticize your works in our lives. Oh God, we want to be healed. We want to be cleansed of sin. We see it. We know it. So I pray for any in this room who see their sin and they know they need to deal with it, but they just don't truly deep down inside want to give up that sin. God, encourage their hearts today that you are pursuing them just like you pursued this man. You are healing. You offer that. And not just healing of physical remedies, though you, can, you could do that. The, the, the illnesses that we have in, in a beautiful way, you can heal those things. And I believe that. But you healed this man for the sake of holiness. Go and sin no more. God, may we receive the healing of our sins that you've offered to us and go and sin no more. God, our hearts are filled with thankfulness. What a beautiful season that we're celebrating right now and heading into this amazing, amazing, glorious season of Christmas. God, it's, it's here in these pages. Your Father is working until now, and you are working. You are equal to God. You are Emmanuel, God with us. We look forward to a celebration this December of Jesus' love for us in leaving his Father's throne and coming to die. God, we thank you. And we pray it in the precious name of Jesus, our Savior. Amen.